Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, welcome, and thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and after an absence of about three weeks, Tim Cockrell, I think it's been, is that right? Yep. It's good to have you back with us, sitting across the table here at the podcast. So Tim recently led our congregation through the opening message of a new series of study in the book of Hosea. So Tim, uh, I wasn't able to be here, so I watched yesterday, and uh, great Sunday service. It's Father's Day child dedication, communion celebration, prostitution discussion. You weave that in, really a nice flow of service. And I want to get to that. Uh, How hard is that to preach a sermon about this kind of a topic here in Hosea? It certainly has its challenges, especially when, you know, we have an audience as young as some kindergartners that are there in the congregation. And I think there's two challenges we have to avoid. One is we obviously don't want to be overly explicit or crude in any way, but we also don't want to undersell the, I'll say, offensiveness of this story because that's really where the power and the punch is in this lived out parable. And so trying to thread that needle where we're dealing with the real and raw realities of life that God is addressing in Hosea's life, but without being unnecessarily gratuitous. Yeah, and, and that brings up a point, and, and to that point, here over the next number of weeks, we're going to be discussing this book. We may be getting into some things that are very sensitive, so if you parents like to listen to the podcast while you, or grandparents even, while you're in the presence of children, you might keep that in mind. And Tim, another thing along those lines that you and I were discussing just before we went to the microphones, and something I hadn't really thought about, this is a something that you... You don't talk about in polite society all the time, mm-hmm. uh, prostitution and, and certainly the, the interaction between Hosea and an unfaithful wife. But I've got to think in that context, that culture, perhaps even more so, it was almost anathema. You just don't talk about this thing. And for Hosea, a prophet of God, to be doing, you know, entering into this kind of relationship and writing about it, Wow. Right. I mean, you imagine the social stigma that he would have experienced, even though we'll see. I mean, their society was coming off the rails. I mean, there was immorality and idolatry and everything everywhere. But that was there. That was other places. Right. But for a prophet of God to be married to someone who was just so casually entering into sexual relationships that really were motivated by shallow self-interest, it would have been shocking. And certainly he would have endured abuse and and mocking and social ostracism that would have just compounded the pain of his wife's unfaithfulness. And and that speaks to another thing. I I like to get into context Mm -hmm. uh, with Hosea. What else do we know about Hosea, if anything? There's not a whole lot there. Not really. I mean, only what we can deduce, you know, what it says there in verse one, as far as the the southern kings and, and certainly Jeroboam and the north that he... Uh, was a prophet, so probably estimate he would have ministered for around 40 years. Uh, so probably began toward the end of Jeroboam's reign when things were fairly peaceful and prosperous and continued ministering all the way through the exile. So he would have watched the people endure the consequences that he had been warning them about for years and years and years. Uh, we don't know for certain, but very likely he began his ministry at the age of 18 or 20. That's about when people typically would have gotten married. And so it wasn't like he was somebody that would have had years and years of maturity here. 
He just simply followed God in obedience and then grew in his faith and maturity through some really difficult circumstances. Well, the three weeks preceding this uh, sermon, we were in a study in the uh, Old Testament prophet of Habakkuk, a prophet for the, from the southern mm-hmm. Jewish nation, Judah. And this week, Hosea, a prophet who is speaking to the northern kingdom, Israel. Can you compare and contrast the situations of Israel and Judah? I know we were in uh, about the uh, mid-8th century B.C. Mm-hmm. when Habakkuk is uh, prophesying, but certainly Habakkuk or when uh, rather Hosea was prophesying Habakkuk maybe 100, 125 years later. What was going on in these different times in these different places, but very related as well? Right, for sure. So, you know, if we trace it back to Solomon and uh, when he dies, the kingdom is divided. And when it's divided, Jeroboam was the king in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And one of the things that happened was kind of a bitter rivalry developed and Jeroboam in the north didn't want to have to go down to the southern kingdom to where the temple was in order for people to worship the Lord and so what he did was he set up a a sanctuary in the north of the northern kingdom and in the south of the southern of the northern kingdom so they didn't have to go into the southern kingdom and he set up golden calves in both of those now his rationale there was Well, this is how you worship the embodiment of God. We know that. Sounds familiar. Exactly, all the way back in Exodus. But what happened was then that made it very common for people to begin to conflate worship of God with worship of Baal. And so that was much more prevalent in the north, but still prevalent in the south. And so it was as if you could watch that the things that were happening in the north were maybe 100 to 150 years more uh, broken down uh, morally than they were in the South. So you had some godly kings in the South, very few godly kings in the North. And, and so in it's interesting in Jeremiah chapter 3, God says to Judah, you watched what happened to Israel. You watched me rebuke them and exile them and divorce them. But you didn't turn from those patterns. You continue to pursue them. And so we see then Habakkuk and, you know, let's say 620, 630 BC, uh, well over 100 years after Hosea ministered, kind of preaching the same message to a different generation because they were following the same paths. And they were going to have the same thing happen. A different group of people come down exactly. and take them away. But uh, Tim, you spent, as I under, as I recall, you spent a few months of study in uh, Israel mm-hmm. back when you were yes. much younger and probably with hair a little bit and uh, but did I'm curious you know we have a lot of things that happened to 300 years ago that we still deal with right now the effects of it whether it's slavery you know chattel slavery or other types of things is there any continuing I'm just curious if there mm-hmm. are any continuing issues that go back 2800 3000 years uh, that carry forward in those sections of Israel Yeah, I would say just off the top of my head, the most common challenge that I would see is not as much the Baal worship, although certainly secularism and those types of things are are very common, where people are Jewish in nationality, but not in any real deeply religious sense. But even for the deeply religious Jews, I would say the more common thing is not as much the, the Baal worship equivalent as much as the 
the empty religion. And and he's Mm going to talk some about that here in Hosea and Hosea 4 and 5, that the people were claiming to give God their allegiance, but in reality, they were just living for themselves. And so I think you have some people that still imagine, you know, we are God's chosen people. We're keeping his law. We're doing these things. But it really is more external than internal. Oh, sounds familiar again, mm-hmm. <laughs> right here in the United States. But I've got to tell you, whenever I think about the scenario that's playing out here in this book, and specifically what God is calling Hosea to do, I can't help but think about God's calling Abraham to mm-hmm. sacrifice or perform child sacrifice with Isaac. These obviously aren't normal circumstances or normal situation that God calls his people to, but how do you respond to someone who, who wants to call God to account, wants to use that as an opportunity to really say, well, you know, what God would, righteous God would do this? What This appears to be a wrong action in most cases, mm-hmm. offering a child in sacrifice. How would you respond to somebody like that? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of layers of complexity there, but I, I go back to the story. I believe it was Jonathan Edwards was uh, talking to his wife. And she was just really wrestling with that idea of Abraham being called to offer his only son. And uh, she said, you know, why would God ever, you know, ask someone to do that? And and Edwards, I'm not going to be able to quote it, but basically said, but that's exactly what God did by giving his own son. And I think, you know, we could go into the context of, of the firstborn son ultimately being guilty before God and deserving death. You know, we could go back to even the Exodus and uh, the Passover lamb as a way of preserving the firstborn son. But that God was just in demanding that, but he was merciful in withholding that judgment. And so I think many times what we have in the Old Testament is God using human relationships to help us try to approximate an understanding of divine truths. God's love for his people, his heartache over their unfaithfulness, uh, even the high cost and seriousness of sin. And so when we look at these things, we're seeing a human picture of divine love. So if we say, well, it would be wrong for Hosea to go marry someone who ultimately would be unfaithful to him, we can't help but then say, but that's exactly what God did with us. And so if God is a holy and righteous God, would redeem and restore those who are guilty and rebelling against him, then I think it's fitting that he gives us a a human picture that helps us capture that drama, if you will. Okay, interesting. And and then uh, let's go to this. Hosea's call to be the father to three children, two of whom you pointed out very possibly not as biological children. That had to be a heartbreaking thing, perhaps embarrassing, likely even angering uh, mm-hmm. to Hosea. But God does not call Hosea to abandon them or their mother. Uh, there may be some times where he's got to pull back, but he, the evidence here throughout the, at least the first three chapters seems to be that he is still acting as their father, uh, certainly acting as Hosea's husband. seems to me there might be some personal instruction to God's people about how we are to handle difficult situations, even as God is addressing the entire Jewish people with this message. Yeah, I think about, you know, I began the message on Sunday talking about when we get hurt, we're betrayed, when we endure pain because of the choices of other people, I can't help but think of how many times I feel justified in being angry, you know, thinking, well, I ought to be able to get revenge on someone or I shouldn't have to endure this type of thing. But many times that's because I've minimized the seriousness of my own sin and maximized the seriousness of someone else's sin. 
But when we really stop and think about God's unconditional love, my mind goes to Ephesians 4.32, be kind and compassionate toward one another, tenderhearted and forgiving one another, even as God in Christ has forgiven you. And so what God is calling us to do is to love others according to the same pattern with which he has loved us. And that requires sacrifice, that requires pain and mistreatment. That doesn't mean we're a doormat, doesn't mean there's not boundaries, let me be clear about that. But that we are loving with patient, generous, gracious love that models what God has done. And so that's what God's calling Hosea to do. That in spite of hardship and betrayal and hurt, that he is going to stick it out to model God's unconditional love. Regarding divorce in particular, Mm -hmm. it goes to the point where I hear what you're saying uh, correctly. It goes to the point that, hey, divorce should be a very last option. Uh, I think we can make that jump here. Hosea is portraying a husband who is doing everything, everything to keep his wife, even though she's certainly being unfaithful. Absolutely. Well, you appropriately, very appropriately referenced uh, Romans 9 as you concluded your message. Paul was writing under God's inspiration there in Romans chapter 9 when he extends the promise of being God's people to the Gentiles. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. As I'm looking at Hosea, I'm not seeing that. Mm-hmm. And and I wanted to just sort of jump into some of, uh, you know, when we see in the New Testament, Paul, in this case, making taking a reference in the Old Testament and kind of bringing it forward and saying, mm-hmm. and I'm just, again, I'm going to show my ignorance here, but here in verses uh Starting in about 20, really 19 of chapter 9 of Romans, uh, he is leading up to this. He's talking about the potter having the right over the clay Mm -hmm. to make, and specifically the Gentiles being brought into the the promise. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Paul makes that. I don't read it there in Hosea. And I'm just curious your thoughts on is some of the language there in chapter 9 of Romans seems to be. Could God not be fulfilling Hosea, or is he saying God is fulfilling Hosea chapter 1, or really all of Hosea, in the bringing forth of the Gentiles into the promise? Right. That's a good question, and let me just pause without getting too technical. When we look at the Old Testament's use in the New Testament, it actually can be used in a variety of different ways. Sometimes it is a clear prophetic fulfillment. So... um, I'm trying to, to think of, you know, when, when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, um, that, that out of Micah 5, 2, you know, we, we see that, that that's what is anticipated. There are other times where it is, I'll say, a thematic parallel. So even, you know, you will call his name Emmanuel. If you look in the context, that actually referred to a child who was born in that day, but that, that was prefiguring or anticipating. And I think that's more of what we see here in the book of Hosea, that, that the pattern with Hosea and Gomer and his children was anticipating God's unconditional love that would be d- displayed in a variety of ways. And then sometimes there's just a single point of comparison that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit are, are drawn as a parallel. So for instance, Hosea chapter 11, verse one says, out of Egypt, I called my son, but the more and more I called, the more and more he rebelled against me. But then when Jesus 
was taken down into Egypt to protect him from Herod, and then he comes up out of Egypt to go back to Nazareth. He says, and this was to fulfill what was written in Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, that doesn't seem to be referring to, you know, the travels of the Messiah, but there's a thematic parallel that just as Egypt, or as Israel was drawn out of Egypt in the first Exodus, that God came up out of Egypt, or Jesus came up out of Egypt to be God's holy people uh, and to be the righteous redeemer. Well, I appreciate you clearing that up for me because that just wasn't working in my brain. I hear you. No, that's great. Appreciate it. Tim, next week we'll be moving through the end of chapter two, I believe. Any additional reading or other study we can be doing to be preparing for that message? Yeah, so there's a variety of different ways you can approach it. Next week, we actually, we've modified the sermon schedule just slightly. We're going to do chapter 2, verses 2 through 13, which if you read that passage, you may say, well, this is not very encouraging because it is it is some hard <laughs> truth. But what we're going to see is, we mentioned on Sunday, there's a, a tapestry of bad news woven together with good news. And 2, 2 through 13 is really just the bad news portion of it, the dark threads, if you will, through the tapestry. But I think it's good to be able to read that over and just... Let that sit, that discomfort of the warnings of judgment. And and so you can certainly read that passage a number of times. I would also encourage you, if you haven't done this before, read the entire book of Hosea. You know, just take in the whole tapestry, step back, if you will, and and get the whole picture. It's 14 chapters. It might take you 20 or 25 minutes. I'm going to assure you there's going to be aspects of it that you're like, I'm confused by that. I don't understand what's going on there. That's okay. But to be able to just get this glimpse of warning and invitation, uh, of calls to repent and to return to be restored, is really just a beautiful picture. Tim, thanks for your uh, faithful exposition of God's Word. I told you before we went, it was a very, uh, you balanced the idea of very tough circumstances and very tough text with uh, things, hey, we've got to still talk about it. Mm -hmm. It's here in God's Word. And it reminds me of the fact that God's Word is not just rah, rah, rah. It's raw. It is. Uh, throughout God's word, there's a lot of rawness, and uh, we—that's one of the things that uh, I know when we're looking at uh, textual criticism. And boy, did God really say this? The fact that we—he includes mm-hmm. even the the rawness—is, I think, an evidence of the truth that is there. Absolutely, it deals with the messy realities of life that we live in and that we need to hear. Very good. Well, listen, we haven't prepared for this, but uh, we, we have some time. Uh, we, we have some time to uh, not just to fill, but I think we can use this time perhaps to go to another topic. And that is the topic uh, here recently. We have indicated to the congregation that we're going to be presenting a an updated or some revisions in our Constitution. Uh, here at Grace, we have a Constitution that is uh, based on Scripture, mm-hmm. but it sort of uh, orders the way we serve as a church and how we meet and uh, the things that we do. I wonder if you would be willing uh, during this time to just share some of the reasons for that. We are going to have this coming Sunday an open f- or a forum where we're going to be describing this. This might be an opportunity, another opportunity just to share, hey, this is why what we're doing and why we're doing it. Absolutely. And, you know, in full transparency, I kind of came in midstream. This was a process that had already begun actually several years before I arrived here at Grace and there's always a tension when you have a foundational document like a constitution. You don't want to be changing it every year or two. It shouldn't be just kind of shifting sand. 
But you also don't want to write it in stone and say no one can ever change this because as the church grows and develops and as we respond to cultural challenges and even new opportunities, we want to have the flexibility and even nimbleness to be able to respond to those things. And so I think it's kind of the convergence of those two things that has led the elders to carefully but thoughtfully go really line by line and article by article through our constitution. Uh, so, for instance, one of the things that we're proposing is some changes to our church covenant. Not really changes in priorities or, or in, in key uh, doctrinal areas, but trying to make it something that is concise and memorable and able to be read together so that when we take the Lord's Supper, for instance, that the members of our church congregation can affirm this covenant. So it's not just some dusty paper that we put away in a file cabinet or a file that's tucked away somewhere in online storage, but that it's a living part of our church congregation's work. And if I can interrupt you there for a moment, um, how does a church covenant, as we uh, presented in the Constitution, it's been there for you know uh, over 70 years uh, one in one form or another, mm-hmm. how does it compare to an historic creed? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say there's definitely similarities. Uh, Typically, a creed is focused on what are the core orthodox doctrines that unite us. And so, I mean, the Apostles' Creed would be an easy example that, that this is the core of what we believe and that there's other things that we might debate on, but, but these are the doctrines that unite us. Whereas a church covenant are the affirmations of how our church life is then lived out in light of our belief in those doctrines. So what are our priorities as a congregation? How do we practice those things? And so I would say it's a little more individual in terms of the church covenant Mm -hmm. that you could go to a different church and find that they maybe emphasize certain aspects of things more than others. And so you'll see even in some of the the proposals that we've provided, we've tried to simplify things, but also clarify them so that it it throws into sharp relief what is really important to us. Because it's not just that we've gathered as individuals, but that we are covenanting together as a community. And so there's commitment and responsibility that's associated with that. Good. And another part of what we're doing, I know, is uh, some cleanup. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, inevitably language changes as we go along. And so sometimes language that was maybe very appropriate 60 or 70 years ago uh, suddenly just sounds a little clunky or or is harder for people to understand and so even just being able to update language in ways that that reads more naturally we see this even in bible translations that a translation that was done 50 or 60 years ago maybe uses certain words that you're like well we don't we don't understand that word as commonly in our society and so we just try to update some of that so it's more readable very good. And again, just to clarify, this was not started when Tim Cockrell came. <laughs> this was started back in really 2019 and mm-hmm. was certainly um, uh, certainly prompted even further through COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be talking about some uh, you know methods of voting and that mm-hmm. type of thing. So I appreciate you sharing. Uh, anything else that you want to Yeah, I would just about? add, I think it's really important to emphasize these are changes the, the elders are proposing, but the elders are are not the final authority on this, the congregation is. And so we are really inviting a dialogue, recognizing that 
just because we've been working on it for a number of years now doesn't mean it's perfect or polished in a way that doesn't leave room for input or, or even uh, critical feedback. And so we're going to dialogue about that. And if there's blind spots or things that we didn't realize or hadn't thought of, we want to be open to the congregation's feedback in that way. But ultimately, it's going to be a congregational vote that's going to ratify these proposed changes. Good. And one other thing before we close here, Tim, a number of people in our congregation, no doubt, have come from churches where uh, the mantra would be, uh, well, we don't have a constitution as such. Our constitution is the Bible. What do you say to those that person who said, well, why do we even need a constitution? Well, all you have to do is look at how many hundreds or thousands of different churches or denominations that are out there that are all using the same Bible, <laughs> but interpreting it in very different ways that speaks to the fact that you do need some guiding documents that articulate how you are interpreting the Bible. Because, I mean, if you've ever had the experience of looking for a church when you go to a new place, you know that if you just went to their website and say, well, we just believe the Bible, <laughs> that wouldn't satisfy you. You would want to know. It shouldn't what, satisfy you. Right. right. What do you believe about some of these key areas? Where do you draw the lines in this? Or how do you interpret these key passages of the Bible? And so that's what a, a constitution will do. So just again, to be clear, we're not proposing any changes to the articles of faith, kind of the, the core doctrinal convictions at this point. These are more uh, procedural process and, and kind of language uh, updates that we're suggesting to the different articles. Very good. Well, hey, thanks for being flexible. We've covered a lot of ground. Really appreciate you being back and welcome back officially. Thank you. Great to be back. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and you can access all Grace sermons and podcast episodes on demand by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our study of God's Word in the book of Hosea. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.